You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Last week, you know, we began a teaching series through the book of Hebrews where we see over and over and over again uh, throughout this letter uh, that Jesus is greater than everyone and everything uh, for all times. And this morning, our scripture addresses the supremacy of Christ Uh, over even the most glorious and spectacular of all creatures, angels. And I feel like we're um, kind of starting mid-sentence in our passage today, but but let's read our passage, walk through it together. We have a real fascinating text to to navigate this morning. Let's read starting in Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is God's word. The topic this morning is really a little different for our 21st century modern American ears. The the topic of angels But for the first century church, like the audience in uh, this uh, book of Hebrews, angels were an impressive role. They had an impressive role and then played a very impressive part in the delivering of God's law in the old covenant. You know, when you read the Bible, you see angels visiting God's people. And these are impressive events. These are spectacular encounters with heavenly beings. And the response is always pretty similar. I mean, what's the, one, the first thing that often comes out of the words of the angels when they encounter humans is what? Don't be afraid. Why? <laughs> because it's a fearful, impressive, awe-inspiring encounter. The presence of angels is terrifying in one sense, beautiful in another. Angels played a role in delivering the law of God At Mount Sinai, angels are glorious beings with an impressive uh, pedigree and play a mighty role in carrying out God's word and purposes in the world. And it's possible because of how impressive and majestic the angelic beings are that the early Christians wrongly elevated the influence and importance of angels above Christ and began to worship them put them in a place in their growth and their sanctification in a place that they shouldn't have been. And by doing this, the early church fell into great error. 
They fell into great sin by elevating the angels and their influence to a point of worship. They were more impressed with angels than of Christ. Now, I tell you this, I've heard a lot of people's struggles through the years and struggles through faith, and I've been privileged to walk alongside many uh, in, in a struggle of sin and hear of their confessions, and, and, and not one person has ever come to me confessing of their struggle of elevating angels above Jesus. I've never heard it, and probably never will. It's just one of those weird things for us to hear. I mean, it's just, it might, it's just not going to happen. Most of us are not practically thinking about angels throughout our day. But let me ask you this, what, what sort of things impress you? What sort of things really impress you in your life that influence you? What opinions matter? I mean, angels had a ministry and a message and an influence in the life of God's people, and they were being elevated above the ministry, message, and influence of Jesus in your life, in their life. What sort of things impress you so much that it might do the same thing? where you have God's word open and you feel that you need to go seek a second opinion, maybe the wisdom of a friend or a family member or a spiritual leader or, or see what, what, what culture is doing. What sort of things impress you and influence you in your life? Suppose a person came to you immediately after having coffee with a, you know, a, a billionaire business tycoon. Maybe someone had just had uh, an encounter with their uh, you know, favorite fashion designer or Instagram influencer, I don't know. Uh, someone that you just encountered said, you'll never know, who, you'll never guess who I just met with. It inspired me, it changed my life. Someone so impressive, someone that you want to be like, that you want to emulate. Someone's faith, someone's habits, someone's career, someone's successes. Suppose another person comes to you immediately after having coffee at their kitchen table with their Bible open, having spent 30 minutes, an hour, reading the words of Christ, listening to his words, digging into his truths. What, what feels more exciting? Guess what I did this morning? I spent time with Jesus and Elon Musk, you know, what you saw, you heard from Elon? Have we, become, have we become so easily impressed with things of this world, with creatures that we have lost that impressive influence of the word of God, of an encounter with Christ and a relationship with God Almighty, the creator of all? What's more exciting in your life to spend time and hear, with Jesus and to, and to hear from his words or someone that you admire in this world. Now, I'm not just looking for the spiritual answer or an answer that you think that you should give, you know, that is, we, I think we know what we ought to be more impressed by, but the reality is uh, we're easily influenced and impressed by things of this world. I got to meet a, a hero of my faith uh, not long ago, a few months ago. Uh, this is a, a pastor whose ministry has you know, unknowingly influenced 95% of my ministry. I mean, I don't know what the number is, but it's, it's a lot. And I'll tell anybody who asks, and I will tell you just in the middle of a conversation, hey, you know, I just can't, you guess who I met? You know, yeah, he texted me. We, we text. It's, 
is someone that is so, but I don't talk about Jesus that way. You know, you may not struggle with being too impressed with angels, but it's likely that you're too impressed with something. It's likely that you're too impressed with someone, reputation, career, approval of, from others, or the opinions of others. How often do you encounter the will of God, the word of Christ, and then seek a second opinion? You know, the book of Hebrews is a book of contrasts. We've talked about that. It's a book about contrasting, comparing, showing the frailty of the world and all of creation and the supremacy of Christ, and he is greater. Jesus is greater than everyone and everything for all times. And the writer of Hebrews takes the most impressive of creatures, the angelic beings that were elevated to such a high point in the minds and lives of these early Christians, and point by point begins to just show how Jesus is greater. He doesn't pick something that's, just, that's clearly inferior to Christ, but something that is clearly impressive in their lives, yet still inferior to Christ. And here the comparison between Jesus and the angels considers four points, and at each point has real-life implications, not only for them, but for us. The writer of Hebrews lists his point out in this passage by navigating through Old Testament scriptures. Here is how Jesus is greater than the angels, but the implications for anything that we are just too impressed by. Here are the four points. His name is greater. His worthiness is greater. His sovereignty is greater. And his function is greater. Here's where we're going first, is that Jesus' name is greater. In verse 5, the writer asks, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Now it's true that in places we are called sons of God. And in a general sense, angels are even called sons of God or referred to as sons in God generally. But there is a specifically a name assigned to Jesus with this extra phrase, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What's being defended here is Jesus's eternal, unchanging, unique love within the father-son relationship that is such a great privilege that God shares with no one. There is this unique relationship, this unique designation an identity of Christ that no one else shares, a love relationship with God. The name of son is never given to any of the angels in such a way. The angels will never rise to such a privilege and place of honor as Christ. Jesus alone enjoys this designation as the son of God. We see throughout the New Testament and the, when the, the, the angel Gabriel announces the, um, the, uh, that Mary was pregnant, he says to her, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. At Jesus' baptism, there's this audible voice from God, from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. At his transfiguration, again, God calls out from heaven and says, this is my son. Listen to what he says and at his resurrection, he is called the Son of God in power. 
Jesus was and is and always will be the eternal son of God, having the final approval and supernatural signature of God's authority over all things. No one else shares this designation. You know, when you're at the store or on the phone with customer service and things are not going your way, why might you ask to speak to a supervisor? <laughs> why might you ask to speak to a manager? You ever done that before? No one, no one does that, right? You're so polite. You want, to, you want to speak to a supervisor to compliment them on their team and how well they're doing, right? Why do you want to do that? Because you know authority and power and privilege always goes up. You know that power is somebody to get something done. If there's any chance, it, you have to go up. By raising Jesus from the dead, God gave final approval to him who had perfectly obeyed the law of God and endured the cross. He bestowed upon him all authority over all heaven and all earth. Jesus bears the name of Son of God. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And nothing else and no one else in all the world has such a privilege. And yet it's possible to treat others as if they do. It's possible to treat others as if they hold that same power, that same weight to direct our lives, to influence our lives to govern our faith. The writer of Hebrews gives us a simple method for testing who should have, you know, what kind of things should direct our lives in, in our life. What kind of things should teach us righteousness and truth and justice. And the simple method is this. What does God say? Man, I wish that we could start more conversations with this question. I imagine there are actions and attitudes and desires that, you, that, that could be brought immediately into line with God's gracious will right now in your life if you just simply paused and asked yourself, what does God say? God's word is the final authority for all of life. Whenever we are confused, whenever we are stuck, whenever we struggle or find ourselves within a moral dilemma, we must start with the question, what does God say? And the writer of Hebrews says, to whom has God said, you are my son? This is his argument. This is his main argument and main uh, rule for figuring out what is right in life. Well, what does God say? Who should we look to? Who should influence us? Whose opinion matters more than anything? Does God call anyone my son other than Jesus? Has he given anyone that power, that privilege, that authority? It's a simple formula, but it's, but it's often a, a neglected one. Angels are impressive. But the writer of Hebrews says, to which of them did God ever say, you are my son? To which has he ever given the influence or privilege to tell you how to live? I would imagine if, if, if an angel came into your, into your bedroom at night and stood at the foot of your bed, it would, you would do exactly what it said. And yet we question God's word 
We come to his will, we come to his commands, and we, we wonder if it's worthy of our immediate obedience. Jesus' name is better. There is no higher name, no better name. And so is his worthiness. Jesus' worthiness is greater. The, the writer moves on to our second point. This is the second argument in our passage to continue to build this evidence that Jesus is greater than all things and all people for all times, even the most impressive of all creatures, the angels themselves. Not only is Jesus the only one called the Son of God, but it's very clear that the person worshipped is always greater than the one responsible for worshipping. Right? The person being worshipped is always more worthy than the one who is worshipping. God says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is called the, the firstborn of creation here. He's called the firstborn because he exists before all of creation, and he's exalted above all of creation. And all of creation is his inheritance. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Here's the point. Angels are breathtakingly majestic but they are still creatures. They are still creatures. A diamond is the strongest and arguably the most majestic of all gems. And it's still a rock. It's still a stone. Some are so small they're called chips. And yet we encase it in gold and protect it with insurance policies and grieve when it's misplaced, and even call them our best friend. <laughs> and it's still a rock. There are people filled with great wisdom and great insight and great power and great authority, and yet, they're still people. There's people whose pleasure and approval and that we admire and seek after. There are statuses in this world that we pursue. There are, there's wealth and career or experiences that we cherish, and yet it's still just created stuff. No creature, no created thing is worthy of our worship. It's as if the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews saying, think of the most impressive thing that you've ever that you can ever think of, and they think of the angelic host, and, and the Hebrews writer says, it's still creation. And that creation worships the creator. That creature is still worshiping. They were created to, to worship Christ. No creature is worthy of holding a place of influence or opinion or esteem in your life above Jesus. There's a, a this is the definition of idolatry to worship the creature above creator, to worship created things above the creator, to place value, dignity, and influence in creation over the creator. Everything created, every created thing, person, and creature was created with one primary purpose in mind, and that is to worship and enjoy their creator. That's why we were created to worship and enjoy our creator. This is the second commandment. The second commandment is that there, there must not be anything in heaven above or on earth below that we find more worthy of our delight than Jesus. 
because there's nothing more worthy than Jesus. There is nothing, no one more capable of filling us with such joy, peace, and rest. There is no one capable of, of rescuing us and saving us. There is no one capable of, of removing our guilt of sin. And if the angels are not good enough to receive worship, then nothing is. And that's the writer's second argument, that Jesus is better in his worthiness. And third argument, as he goes on, is that Jesus' sovereignty is greater. Verse 7 through 9 is, is really something. It's, it's really amazing, and I want to uh, read it again, 7 through 9. Of the angel, he says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Angels are called winds. Angels are called ministers of fire and flame. This is a way of saying that angels sometimes, as we know from God's word, would inhabit wind and fire and natural elements in order to accomplish and carry out the sovereign purposes of God. God employs his angels, these mighty, powerful beings, to bring about the, God's purposes in all of creation. And we see this throughout the Bible. We're even told that the angels will carry out God's uh, judgment and justice at the, at the last days. Remember, Hebrews is a book of contrasts. Angels will change shape, they'll change form, they'll change identity to bring about God's purposes. But Jesus is not like that. How so? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The angels will change shape and identity and form to bring about God's plan. And we are told in this passage that it is the plan of Jesus that they are actually carrying out. Who is more worthy? They change. They take orders. They exist to serve God. And here, it is Christ who is giving the orders. Angels, angels are subject to constant change, but Jesus doesn't change. You can know that in any, in any moment, in any day, the, the word that he speaks to us is consistent. That any struggle that we are going, to, whether, going through, whether it was yesterday, today, or, or years from now, that he has not changed, his opinion doesn't change, his plans, his will, his purposes, his agenda for our life has not changed. Angels are subject to decay and destruction. God has given to them a, a sort of um, immortality, but they can be destroyed, they can decay, but Jesus and his reign are forever and ever. What's being affirmed here about Jesus is not only that he shares oneness with God, Jesus here is called God, but that he reigns over his church and over all of creation with per perfect righteousness, truth, and joy. Why, why is this important to know that the angels change, but Jesus doesn't? Because, listen to this, because when God's people experience instability and uncertainty in life, we often find shelter in created things that are just as unstable. When we are meant to look at Jesus, whose unchanging quality brings assurance and rest. We have a refuge. We have a shelter in Christ. 
who doesn't change. Everything else that we find a shelter and refuge in is, is insecure. Everything else is fading. Everything else is, is susceptible to decay. The earth will pass away as we know it. Jesus and his kingdom will endure forever. Even the heavens, we are told in this passage, will be rolled up like a garment, like dirty laundry, and rolled up. And the new heaven, the new earth, the new creation will come, but Jesus will have no end. Here's another question. It's, it, it's, this might be the easier question to answer today. Does the world seem fragile and insecure? Or does it seem well put together, <laughs> stable, steadfast, sure? I mean, it's, it's weak, isn't it? Day to day, we don't know what's coming around the corner. This could bring anxiety and fear. It could bring uh, concern into our life. We, but we are meant to look at that in contrast to Christ whose sovereign rule and kingdom has no end. We are meant to see contrast here, not to be driven to fear, but driven to hope and security. The world is frail. And the circumstances of this world are unstable. But Jesus' eternal nature is sure, eternal, and steadfast. He is sovereign. He holds the world in his hands. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. His promises are sure. The writer of Hebrews is teaching us how to read the Old Testament scriptures and also how to read all of the Bible and that is to read the Bible through Christ-colored lenses, promising and anticipating, portraying and celebrating the coming of Christ, the sovereign reign of Jesus. When we read the Bible, we are always meant to read it in anticipation of God accomplishing all that he has promised to accomplish. Anticipating that the world does break apart, the world is insecure, that it's it is uh, cursed, but Jesus is a rescuer. The Old Testament's not just the story of God that predicts uh, the coming of Christ. It is the story of God that is, the, that is all about the eternal reign of Christ over creation. Genesis 1-1 is about Jesus and his reign over creation. It's all about Jesus. It all points to Christ. It all anticipates and celebrates God's rule over creation. And so he is sovereign, more sovereign than the angels. They have no power apart from the power that is delegated to them by God. And Jesus rules over it all. And finally, we're told that his function is better than the angels. What he does is better and how he functions in creation and in our lives is better than anyone and anything for all time. Look at verse 13. To which, as the angels ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, the right hand of God is often mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned quite a bit. And that to be at the right hand is not to be in this kind of like apprentice position or like JV. It's like, you know, God is like varsity and Jesus is like learning. <laughs> 
You know, it's not like uh, how we might use it as if you call someone like your right-hand man, man, it's like someone who's just a good ally, a good friend, who's kind of helping you, helping you out in it. The purpose of Christ sitting at the right hand of God is to conquer his enemies, all of his enemies, once and for all. In a theological sense, to be at God's right hand is to be in a position of unique power and authority delegated to execute and accomplish all of God's purposes as he decrees. That's, that's a big responsibility. And all of the purposes and plans and agenda of God is to defeat the enemies of Christ's kingdom. And God has many enemies. Sin and Satan, the world, death itself, and hell. And all of these are enemies of the kingdom of Christ. And to defeat sin can be seen in a couple ways. To bring salvation to his people and to usher in the future perfect new creation. We're told that Jesus was sent from the right hand of God at the incarnation to be born a man, to accomplish the um, substitute for our sins. This is the Christmas story. It isn't that fascinating that for all eternity past, Jesus was at the right hand of God. He is sent from the right hand of God to take on our likeness, to die the death that we deserve to die, to raise again to new life, and he went back to the right hand of God to rule over all of creation in a glorified existence. We're told that Jesus returns to the right hand of God after his resurrection and the ascension. When he goes up to heaven, what does he do? He sits at the right hand of God. This is the Easter story. This is the ascension story. We see from, from eternity past and to, from Christmas to Easter to ascension to even now, we see Christ executing the will of God. In the first sense, Jesus executes the plan of God by saving his people, by leaving the side of God, by leaving glory, by leaving the glory of heaven, becoming a man and dying for our sins. In a second sense, the return on the last day he will return to glorious reward his, gloriously reward his people for all eternity and to once and for all set right all that has been ruined by sin. God will make all his enemies the footstool for Christ. We are told that the night before Jesus was crucified, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew this plan and he pursued it with joy. John 13, 3 and 14, 1 to 3 says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, right? The sovereign, sovereign steward of all of God's things, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, tells this to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is amazing. Jesus is saying, I came from God's side and I'm going back. And I will come again. What is all of this doing? It's to execute the plan of God. What is the plan of God? To rescue you and to bring about the new creation, 
so that we can be with him. In the mind of God, what is he thinking about? Doing everything he needs to do to bring you home. And he's using the angels right now, still, to accomplish those plans, to minister to you, to minister through Christ, to bring his word, to protect us from sin. Let not your hearts be troubled. You see, Jesus is attentively and lovingly active in your life. We might be be more uh, intrigued by the idea of guardian angels than we are of Christ and his active pursuit of us. And the scriptures would say, that's backwards. The angels don't do anything that they're not told to do by Christ. Look to him. Find delight in him. Jesus is lovingly active in our life to convict us of sin and our need for rescue to take our our guilt on the cross, to wash us clean of all unrighteousness, but also to sustain us right now in every moment. He upholds, verse three, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he stops talking, then the world collapses and the universe ceases to be. This is amazing. He holds us together. He sustains us. He governs us. He ministers to us. He sends his spirit into our hearts. He enables us to respond in faith. He enables us to resist temptation, to love his commands, to raise us up from the dead into eternal glory at his return. What's what's the implication for today? What a comfort it is to know that Christ is still so busy working on our behalf. He still ministers to us. We are never defenseless defenseless in a difficult world. God takes thought of his people so much. He takes thought of you and we're completely unaware and may never know how he sends angels to minister to us in times of need. Now, there's something peculiar that kind of happens here. When I say that, I want you to... I want you to kind of understand maybe what's happening inside of you and in your emotions and heart as you think about this. Angels are ministering to you in your life without you knowing it. Is that cool? Jesus has been doing that all the while. (laughs) You're more impressed that angels, wow, that's so cool. Angels are thinking about me and ministering to me. Jesus has been doing that. You see how easily impressed we are? We're so caught up into this spiritual experience, this amazing thing that happens without our knowing. But Jesus is doing that. Jesus is ministering to us. He is actively involved in your life. Sorry for yelling at you. Let me, let's consider the question again. What impresses you? Where else will you turn for the righteousness that you so desperately need? Where, where else will you turn for the strength in times of weakness? In whom will you seek refuge in times of spiritual struggle? Where will your confidence be when you stand in the presence of God? 
Will it be in your record or will it be in the record of Christ? His perfect obedience, his perfect substitute for you. There is one. His name is Jesus. His throne is forever. He never changes. And yet he came into the world as one of us that he might bear the weight of our sin. To die, to raise again, and to return to God's right hand to sustain us, and he will come again. Friends, there is no one better. There is no greater comfort. There is no greater righteousness. There is no greater wisdom. There is no greater influence. Nothing should impress us so much that the fact that God still speaks to us and ministers to us, we should stand in awe of God's word We should stand ready to obey. And when he tells us he will accomplish everything he has promised, we should be at rest, knowing that he will not fail. Do you need forgiveness for your sins? Christ is exalted on high at the right hand of the Father because God accepted his sacrifice on the cross for you. There is forgiveness for you. Do you need communion and closeness with God that you long for? Know that Christ sits at the right hand of God, interceding for you and offering prayers on your behalf and perfect prayers. And he is heard. His prayers for you are heard because of Christ's perfect righteousness and affection for you. Do you need strength for today to follow God more faithfully? Know that all the resources in heaven are at Christ's disposal and he sends them to you in the power of the Holy Spirit, even the angels themselves, to minister to you, to guide you. He gives you his word. And even better, he sends the Holy Spirit to work within us by his power. He is with you today. He is with you now. He is worthy of our attention, our obedience, and our joy. Let's give it to him.